most importantly, the residents lose, you know, because they are experiencing this, this high level of distress because staff are interacting with them who aren't trained. And it's causing all of these negative emotions. And that's just not fair to them. That's not good quality of life. On top of that, if falls and things like that occur, then they have pain, then they have confusion, and all of these things that can be prevented simply by staff training. You're listening to Bridge the Gap Season 5, a podcast dedicated to informing, educating, and influencing the future of housing and services for seniors. Powered by sponsors AccuShield, Connected Living, Hamilton Captel, Inquire, One Day, LTC REIT, It's Never Too Late, Meridian Capital Group, Salinity, The Bridge Group Construction, and produced by Salinity Marketing. Welcome to Bridge the Gap Podcast, the senior living podcast with Josh and Lucas. An exciting topic on today with a former guest of our program. We want to welcome Jennifer Stelter. She's an author and a clinical psychologist. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We're excited about the new content that you've just put out. You have written a book called The Busy Caregiver's Guide to Advanced Alzheimer's Disease. And you've written this through the Johns Hopkins Press. And today we're gonna go over four main points around the topics of staffing shortages in senior living and how even today you can do simple resident engagement techniques with uh, those that have dementia, different sensory approaches that can free up the staff time, but also be engaging the residents. You know, Labor is a big issue today, but also resident engagement coming out of the last two years of a real nightmare situation. You know, uh, senior living, senior housing's um, kind of big value proposition is engagement and not isolation. And so I think this is a really important topic, especially related to dementia. Can you walk us through a couple of these main points to educate our audience? Absolutely. I, I wanted to start first by talking a little about where the staffing shortages are at at this point. And still senior living facilities are seeing an 80 to 90 percent decrease uh, or 89, 80 to 90 percent uh, kind of bandwidth, if you will, that these facilities are still reporting staffing shortages. And it's just astounding. And we hope, obviously, that as things start, start to reconcile with the pandemic, that you know these senior living facilities will you know start to increase their employment and the advantages for these staff, but uh, but still you know again 80 90 percent are still uh, reporting that they're having staffing shortages, and the other component of this too, which is harder I think for these staffing facilities, although they've been able to, uh, so some states have actually moved towards nursing students being able to act as licensed practitioners and some non-certified staff who've had minimum training as long as they're trained by their facility, they can provide direct care. I think that's great for this issue with the staffing shortages, but really the problem is, is these individuals who are not yet fully trained in their own education and experience and they're coming on and they're providing direct care, they're gonna be at a loss as well of what to do with individuals, especially if they have dementia. Because when we look at, you know, where we're at, you know, nursing homes are at about a 48% population of people who have dementia. And really, uh, between assisted livings and nursing homes, 80% of individuals have cognitive issues. So it's really, of course, rampant in senior living. And so when you have staffing shortages, and then you have people coming on who aren't really fully trained, um, it, it does cause an issue of, you know, how do I truly engage my residents, right? And so I've seen this time and time again, when we talk about, well, you know, how hard could it really be to engage a resident? But this scenario I'm going to kind of play out for you guys happens 
countless times, you know. So let's just say you have a untrained staff member, let's just say a CNA, who is working with individuals who have dementia. And they're approaching this resident uh, because maybe it's lunchtime and they need to bring the resident to the dining area for lunch. And they come up behind the resident with the intent that I'm doing my job, I'm going to go ahead and move them, wheel them into the dining area. And they end up startling the resident because they're approaching from behind and not knowing that that will startle the resident or that the resident wasn't able to be aware that that staff member was there. And so what happens is maybe then that resident starts to act out because they're having difficulty communicating that they're scared or they're confused as to where they're going because they weren't told. And so they might dig their heels into the ground. You know, they might try to swat back and hit the CNA's hand. You know, at some point, you know, when the CNA maybe goes around to lock their wheelchair once they're in lunchroom, maybe the resident unfortunately maybe spits or hits the CNA because they're just trying to protect themselves, which the CNA doesn't know. And there from there, you know, the CNA is confused. They're feeling a little disheartened because I'm just trying to help this person. Why are they doing this to me? They don't know, you know, so the resident is in distress, the CNA is in distress. And of course the CNA is going to do what they're trained. They're going to go to the nurse. They're going to tell the nurse what's going on. And then that nurse, unfortunately, is, you know, going to assess the situation. If they assess that the resident was aggressive and did act out because maybe that nurse is not trained as well in dementia care. Um, Cause maybe again, it's, it's one of these individuals who are a nursing student who um, aren't quite licensed yet, don't have the experience. So they decide to give the PRN medication, you know, psychotropic medication that will help decrease the agitation of the resident. And unfortunately, then the resident, let's just say 24 hours later, falls in the nursing home, right? Then is sent to the hospital. So all of these things spiral out of control because we have staff that aren't trained and they don't have the resources needed to be able to do their job effectively, right? So time and time again, we see this, but What's important is that if we can engage our residents in an appropriate way with some basic techniques, it's going to be really helpful for them, for these you know, new staff coming on and for the staffing shortages, that there's things that they can do in the facilities with these residents that won't lead to some of these kinds of behavioral, negative behavioral expressions, I call them, right? With that said, you know, the, with the model that I had talked about in my new book, um, it's called the Dementia Connection Model. And really the main approach to care in there is sensory stimulation, as you mentioned. Um, why that particular approach to care, right? And that's very familiar in our industry. It's not something new that I created, right? Um, but it's a piece of the model that talks about why we use sensory stimulation. And it's really for two reasons. Because one, when we take in any stimuli through our senses, our limbic system and our brain is either directly or indirectly influenced. And the limbic system is an important part of this process because in there we have our amygdala, which is responsible for generating our emotions and our hippocampus, which is responsible for our memories. And so when we take in stimuli, we are influencing our feelings. We are influencing our memories, right? And so that's why sensory stimulation is so effective with people with dementia. But a second reason why it's even more effective for them and I explain this in, the, in, the, in my model, the dementia connection model, the first pillar of that is understanding what's going on. And that's through the theory of retrogenesis. Now, the theory was actually developed by Dr. Barry Reisberg years ago through his research. And so 
I tie together his theory with this use of sensory stimulation in the dementia connection model. And what's happening is um, as there, you know, he found that as the disease is progressing, individual moderate to late stage start to experience their world much differently than you and I, right? And they start to live in the past, but all of their skills go in reverse as well from their ability to cope, to take care of themselves, to communicate, their language, everything goes in reverse. They start to experience the world very similarly. And what he found specifically was um, the ages of a child from age seven years old to four weeks old. And so for people who are moderate to late stage, you know, he even, this was an interesting fact just to throw it out there too, is uh, he actually even saw that the physical uh, size of the brain was similar to a young child as well. So when you take someone with late stage dementia, their size of their brain is the same size as someone who's below the age of eight. Um, and so everything goes in reverse. And so we look at how do children navigate their world in the first few years of life? How do they learn, right? Because I kind of joke about this sometimes, but you know, when a child is, is you know, infant is first born and within those first year, they might start to coo and babble and play with their language. And they're associating though, who is mama, who is dada, right? By hearing that those words over and over again, they're seeing who mom and dad are, right? And they can smell them as well. So these are different senses that they're taking in information and they're learning through those senses what they're, what's in front of them, how to navigate, right? They didn't pick up a book, right? Here's the joke, right? They don't pick up a book and they read about it and say, oh, this is my mother. Okay, now I know to call her that, right? They don't do that. They have no concept of that. They can't even read, right? So the idea here is because we know people with dementia are gonna go back into an earlier state, they're going to learn differently by using their senses just like children do because the theory does prove that that's what has occurring essentially. Um, so they're gonna use what they see and hear and taste and touch and smell to learn now how to navigate their world, how to communicate, all of those things, right? So that's also why sensory stimulation is so important because that's gonna be their main source of connecting with you as the caregiver or connecting with the staff, you know, whomever's in front of them. They're even there, you know, if they have a roommate or whatever it might be, that's how they're gonna connect now. So it's really important that through sensory stimulation that we're focusing on this to being positive. What's positive for this person versus this person, right? And as long as we are continuously flowing in this positive stimuli, this will influence positive feelings and positive memories, right? And that's where the connection comes in. That's why I call it the dementia connection model, because it's really about connecting that individual to the caregiver, to the staff member, to their environment, right? where they, it's a win-win for everybody. You know, if your resident or your loved one is happy, you're happy, right? If your loved one or resident's happy, their roommate's happy, their friends are happy, you know, whomever is in the community, you know, those kinds of things too. When we talk about this idea of what are things that, you know, with the staffing shortages, what can staff do to engage residents so that way they're having to be side by side with these residents all the time trying to engage them because they've got things they've got to do too, right? Um, so the reality is that there are a few things that they can do that would allow them to set up what the person would do, the resident, 
as well as be able to, from afar, monitor the residents. We never not don't want to monitor the residents. Of course we do. But maybe they could get some of their um, documentation done, maybe some cleaning done. Maybe it's a nurse passing medications, you know, those kinds of things where they can observe the residents from afar after they've been set up with things to do that are sensory based. Hey, Senior Living Influencer, we have an event for you. So many of you have heard about our VIP Ignite experience, and it is time for you to request your invite. It's going to be in Nashville, August 28th through the 30th, and you are not going to want to miss this event. Join us for Dream Again. Check out VIPIgniteExperience.com to request your invitation. We hope to see you there. I'm sitting here as an operator and I'm thinking of our, our listeners, which are, you know, a lot of people out all across the country um, operating these communities or in the communities actually doing this work. As you know, our industry is for the most part um, state regulated. And this idea of, uh, you know, some states don't even have um, uh, standardized training. Uh, they just kind of say a certain number of hours have to be on a core of dementia training, but then other states don't even have that. So I, I can imagine our listeners right now are sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is so good. Uh, you know, we need to do this. How do we do this with all of our team members and, and how much time should I dedicate it, dedicate to adequate training, not just meeting a minimum standard, but what, how much time should I be devoting to every new team member as they come on board and then annually kind of thereafter to do this and make sure everybody's really equipped because obviously that means better quality of care and they're probably going to be happier in their job too so maybe we lower, lower turnover we increase occupancy we improve quality of care so i say all that to say what do you see as for that operator how much time should they be designating for this type of training um for, for their team members sure i think it's definitely something where it should be ongoing um, I know some states, and as you mentioned, some states don't have this, but some states, there's a, an orientation requirement within a certain period of time, and then there's annual requirements thereafter, right? And then, like you said, there's some states that don't have anything at all, which really, I think, is a detriment to those residents, and of course, the staff as well. You know, there's some core areas that I think really need to be um, at someone's forefront when they're going to train. And roughly that takes probably about six to eight hours of training to cover those areas. Um, I think definitely what we can get better at as an industry is training that staff before they hit the floor. And I know there's not always time for that, but unfortunately what happens is that scenario that I gave earlier, why is that a detriment to everybody? You know, I'm gonna start with kind of the, the operators, like you mentioned, it's a detriment to the operators and their facilities because when you're, you have unnecessary falls, right? And you're using unnecessary psychotropic medication that can be proved because there were no, no non-pharmacological techniques used before, right? You've got a hospitalization on your record. You're talking your quality measures are gonna plummet. If this, is, if this is a case scenario that happens repeatedly, you know, you're gonna go ahead and have your quality measures plummeted. And then your five-star rating goes down in skilled nursing, right? And so, it's, it's a detriment for them because those staff are not trained before they hit the floor, right? It's a, de a detriment to the staff because then they feel incompetent 
because they want to do right. You know, uh, these CNAs and nurses and, and other um, senior living staff, they want to do right. And when they can't, because they don't feel properly trained or supported, they leave. They want to quit their job and go on and do something else or go to another company that will give them that training, right? Because it's important that we invest in our staff so they feel like they're being taken care of. So they lose if we don't do that. And of course, most importantly, the residents lose, you know, because they are experiencing this, this high level of distress because staff are interacting with them who aren't trained. And it's causing all of these negative emotions. And that's just not fair to them. That's not good quality of life. On top of that, if falls and things like that occur, then they have pain, then they have confusion, and all of these things that can be prevented simply by staff training. So definitely training six to eight hours before they hit the floor on key areas. And then annually thereafter, there needs to be refreshers because this industry can, keeps growing. We keep learning about this disease. There's still no cure, but the research that still comes from it is valuable to individuals to stay up to date on their on their information. Um, and I just want to say too that you know through the the building of my model and things like that, um, my company NeuroEssence we're building out an institute called the Dementia Connection Institute, um, and people can look at our website dementiaconnectioninstitute.org and find us there. We're building out a classroom with this required training that's online. You can take it at your convenience. Um, as well as we do live training. So lots to offer through the Institute and we're excited to hear to launch it um, in early 2022. So, Well, that is great information and congratulations on that launch. One of, uh, another great bit of information is uh, innovation and uh, approaches that uh, are coming down the pike that are already out there that maybe some of our listeners aren't aware of that are fairly practical, uh, you know, and, and fairly affordable. And you highlight many of those. Can you give us some examples of that? Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to also point out what senses are we tapping into? Because that's important to understand that. Because that's got to be at our forefront. What senses are we tapping into? Does this person enjoy it? So it would be considered positive stimuli. And so first I want to talk about, a lot of people may be familiar with animatronic pets, right? And you see kind of one right here, our, our little cat. And then um, also, you know, our dog. So um, actually, um, Joy for All Pets is one who developed the animatronic pets. Now, if for some reason you don't have access to it being animatronic, you can use any kind of lifelike stuffed animal. Okay. I use the word lifelike because we want to make sure that these interactions are served with dignity, right? Because our senior folks deserve that. Um, and so, even though in my model, you know, we talk about the theory of retrogenesis and how people with dementia, you know, they're experiencing the world as, you know, very similarly to how children do. We do not treat people with dementia like children, right? But there are similar techniques we can use with the understanding of where they're at developmentally now, but we will always want to approach them with dignity and respect. And so the animatronic pets are great because they're multi-sensory, right? They're visual. The, the, uh, these particular pets, you can hear them. They can turn them on. They're auditory. It's a tactile stimulation, right? Um, and so it's very multi-sensory in nature. It can also be olfactory too, as you may see here, um, I'm big into aromatherapy. And so you can actually put a couple of dabbles of the essential oil like lavender on the lapel of the dog. And then you're gonna have that olfactory stimulation and lavender is very calming for the person with dementia. And so you're kind of approaching them in a multi-sensory uh, respect where they get that interaction, but also they're staying calm, cool, and collected. And as we know, pets are 
provide that unconditional love, right? And so there's just that connection already that's served based on what pets do for us. Because I know not even now to today, it's hard to get um, actual certified pet therapists in the facilities still because some may still be reserved to not bring in that extra, you know, they're being cautious because of COVID, you know? So with that said, they may have not con recontacted their pet therapist yet to come back in. So these are a great supplement because you can do this morning, noon, and night, and it's a one-time cost. You're not continuously paying a pet therapist or trying to book them, if you will, if they're for free. So with that said, the animatronic pets are, are a great way to be multi-sensory. I mean, I have worked with people with dementia and, you know, offer these to them and they can sit for hours brushing them and talking with them and taking them on walks and all those kinds of things that they love to do with them. Um, I would suggest a training in this just because there are questions that might be thrown your way from the resident that may catch you off guard and how do I respond to that, right? So a, a good training would be beneficial uh, with that. Um, but when you are just some basics, when you're approaching them, you want to show them the pet and look at their facial expressions or body language. Do they seem to want to interact with the pet? If they don't, maybe A, they don't like pets or that particular pet, or B, they're just not having it right now or they're just not into it. So you don't wanna force it upon them, but it's always important to show them that and then say, uh, hi, can you help me with um, taking care of my pet? Can you watch her for a while? Things like that. So that way they know to interact with it. And that can go, um, you know, all too while we see residents kind of you know, congregating around nursing stations and facilities, you know, so that can easily go on a nursing station. It can go on a couch of some sort or even on the resident's lap and they can interact with it, which is a lot of fun. So um, the other thing I want to um, mention too is uh, very similar to the, uh, to the pets is dolls, right? And so infant doll therapy, I know it's controversial still, which I think is a shame because infant dolls can provide so much interaction. It's very multi-sensory in nature, just like the pets where it's visual. Some are auditory in nature where some dolls that you get them can make noises. We just recommend stay away from ones that cry because nobody likes that, that can be distressful. Um, and so with that said, um, it can be visual, it can be auditory, but again, it could be olfactory. If you decide to put a couple of essential oils on the baby's clothes, you get that olfactory sense as well. Um, but with the dolls, you want to make sure you have accessories, which is so much fun. Their clothes, diapers, bottles, um, burp cloths, you know, things like that, because they can interact with the baby, but they can also interact with just the accessories. So Oftentimes residents, you know, maybe they were homemakers growing up, they would love to do the laundry. So maybe they could sort and organize the burp cloths or the clothes or the socks or whatever it might be, which also adds a component of cognitive stimulation. They're using their executive functioning skills in their frontal lobe where they are organizing and sorting by color or by size or something like that, which is again, hours and hours of joy that can, it can bring them and again, the staff can just be in the background doing their documentation, cleaning, passing meds, whatever they need to do, obviously, um, to help with that. So this is a wonderful approach as well. Um, another one is adult coloring, which serves all of us, not just individuals with dementia. There's been a ton of research that shows it helps lower anxiety, um, helps boost mood. Um, and that's a form of uh, visual and tactile stimulation. And what's wonderful about it, particularly for people with dementia, is they get to process how they're feeling on paper when they can no longer find the words. 
And that's why we do actually encourage coloring for young children, because before the age of four, they can't articulate how they're feeling, but when they color, it comes out, it helps a release. And so in the research that they found with people with dementia, it provides that same resource where they can divulge and process those feelings on paper or through their craft, if they're painting or whatever it might be um, in terms of an art project. But as long as you have the supplies there that are appropriate for them and the things that they're coloring or that they're drawing are appropriate as well, meaning not cartoon-like that a child would play with, right? We don't want to do that. But if it's a nice vase, maybe picture or it's a scene of a beach or maybe a countryside, something that they can identify with from their history, they could spend, you know, again, an hour, two hours doing that and really have a lot of joy from it, um, which would be helpful as well. Another one, I just have two more that I want to talk about. One is uh, any kind of puzzles. So if they're maybe a little higher functioning and they can do it more independently, this is a form of visual and tactile stimulation. But even more importantly, of course, cognitive stimulation, where we're working different parts of their brain to keep those skills alive. And I talk about that in another piece of my uh, model, which is called habilitation. And it's really about trying to uh, reinforce those skills that are still there over and over again. So they keep them longer, right? And so the puzzles are great because they come in all different kinds of sizes. You can get ones with very minimal pieces and some that are more difficult, right? So depending on the functioning level of that person, you'll want to get the appropriate puzzle, but it can also be things if they enjoy word searches or if they enjoy wheel of fortune, you know, there's so much that they can, can do there too. Again, hours of fun uh, that can be helpful. Um, and then last, I want to talk about some technology-based tools that are out there too, where, you know, if you set the individual up on an iPad or a laptop and they're able to still, you know, work through and function through that again, based on level of functioning, there are beautiful things that you can put up there, like uh, uh, scenes of landscapes and different kinds of music and, and slideshows, you know, um, Link Scener is a great opportunity for that. And then new on the scene is Memory Lane TV. And so these are just some great resources I want to share with you as well, because they uh, can really help with some of the technology-based tools that help to really provide that appropriate engagement too. So again, these are things that a staff member can set up the resident with observe from afar, get something, some of their duties done because maybe they're short staffed that day and the resident is engaged. And this will help to avoid things like the aggressive behaviors, the falls, the wandering, the repetitive behaviors, these negative behavioral expressions that occur when a resident is bored or frustrated or feeling anxious because they're not sure what they should be doing, right? These are things that can help uh, really serve the resident and serve the staff at the same time. And that's a win-win. Wow. Dr. Jennifer Stelter, what a wealth of information. Actually, we are just scratching at the very surface of the wealth of information she brings. Thank you for spending very valuable time for us today. Lucas, she had me at coloring, okay? If I can go to a senior living community and, and get paid to color, I am all in 100% because I still do that with my kids and love that activity. So it's really cool to hear the therapeutic um, side of that. Uh, you're in communities every day, a lot of information to take in. Yes, absolutely.
Well, we'll make sure that we put all of this in the show notes for easy access to all of our listeners. Also go to btgvoice.com, connect with us there and all of our content. We'll have a transcript of the show if you'd like to dive in in a little more detail and then also access any of our social sites. Make sure you connect with us there. Thank you for your time today, doctor. And thanks to everybody for listening to another great episode of Bridge the Gap. Thanks for listening to Bridge the Gap podcast with Josh and Lucas. Connect with the BTG Network team and use your voice to influence the industry by connecting with us at btgvoice.com.